So as I said, we are in a uh, different place this morning. We're going to one of the key passages of the resurrection. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. Turn there if you have your Bible in front of you. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks in detail about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and contains some of the most curious and powerful passages in the New Testament, especially regarding the future of the church and our hope in Christ. And so I'm doing 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 49. It is a hefty passage of scripture, and so we won't look at it in as much detail as we normally do um, our, our passages, excuse me, but we will uh, indeed cover that portion. So this is Paul's theological discourse on what Dave just read for us. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 beginning reads, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Similar verse to what we heard last week in Romans. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them, uh, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but it was the grace of God that was within me. So whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, and not even, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then all those who have fallen asleep also in Christ have likewise perished. If in Christ we hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under, under him, 
that God may be all in all. So that just means that Christ will return all of his reign to God and in participation together, we will worship God. I know that's a bit of a tongue twister. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptizing on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What, what do I gain if, humbly speaking, I fought with bears at Ephesus? Beasts, sorry. If the dead are not raised. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not, do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. <clears throat> but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but it is a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives a body as he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, for there is one kind of one kind for humans, another kind for animals, another kind for birds, and another for fish. These are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another kind. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness and it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body and it is raised a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a life, a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual first, but the natural, then the spiritual the first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the first man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as it is the man of heaven, so are also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of man, so shall we also bear the image of the man of heaven. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, as we come to your word, open our eyes and our ears to understand the resurrection, to believe it, defend it, and proclaim it. And God, may the, may the sound of your word this morning go out and accomplish great things, Lord. May you tear down strongholds that are raised up against your knowledge, Lord. May you conform your church to your image. And may all those who hear the name of Christ bow and receive him as Lord. We thank you for this passage. We ask that you'd help us now to understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, a long passage. I don't think I've ever preached on 50 verses before. But here we go. I think you're going to enjoy this and see some interesting depth here about what the resurrection of Christ means for you and I today. In the early days of the church, <clears throat> the story of a man being raised to life was foolish to the Greek culture that surrounded the early church. It was not an astounding or even interesting message. It was actually foolishness, especially if the story was that God was the one who had raised him. Reason was, was because the Greeks believed that the physical body was something that you needed to escape. You needed to shed it like a snake sheds its skin and move on to better things. The Greeks believed in escaping the physical realm. 
So the story of a man coming back to life made no sense to them if it was God. Because if it was really God, he would be helping us escape from our bodies, not bringing them back to life. The body was a cage and a, and a, <clears throat> and a confinement to those early Greeks surrounding the first century church. And in the Jewish culture, it was a stumbling block. For why and how could their king be subject to death? So the story of the gospel had no sympathetic ears in the first century. If you think it's hard to share the gospel today, you can relate very well with the church in the first century. Nobody wants to hear it. It's either foolishness or it's offensive. That's the story of the gospel. That is the ID of the Christian gospel since day one. And yet, this offensive and foolish doctrine of the resurrection of the Son of God, in Paul's words, is our cornerstone doctrine. It is the cornerstone, the foundation of everything that we do and we believe. And so what Paul is saying here, even though he wrote this in the first century, is that there would be, for all of human history, there would be no event, no governmental decree, no parliament, no media event, no movement or revolution, no book, no philosophy, and no celebrity that would ever surpass the importance of what happened in that Passover week in AD 30. Again, much like the early church, we live in a culture that is skeptical, if not hostile, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, what our culture and what those who surround the church would say is, it's fine if Jesus is in your books. It's fine if he's just a great teacher that you can reference for understanding. It's fine if he's a great spiritual inspiration to you. It's fine if Jesus lives somewhere in your heart. But when it becomes offensive is when we say, no, Christ came back to life in a physical body. And then he became king over this earth. That's the part that the resurrection offends with. And so today, in our day, just as it was in Paul's day, but in a new culture, it's a time to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ, believing it, it is non-negotiable. It's a time to defend the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then finally, it's a time to embrace it. And what Paul means by embrace, we're going to look at. So the first 11 verses here is we, we see it's a time to proclaim the resurrection, the real resurrection of Jesus Christ. I saw a video clip of a, uh, a pastor friend of mine on a Canadian talk show, kind of one of those low budget ones where the camera is sort of shaking. So it's a little bit off-putting from a media standpoint, but the, the discussion was so critical and interesting because he was debating and addressing a so-called Christian man who was arguing for being able to continue to indulge in sexual sin. And it was this debate back and forth, and my friend was being called unkind for denying the Christian faith of this poor old man who was an advocate for sexual sin. And my pastor friend, so wisely, he asked this poignant question. In the midst of all the debate about who's kind and who's loving, and he said to the man, do you believe that Christ was raised in the flesh? The man said, no, he was raised in spirit. And he said, then you're not a Christian. I'm not denying you your Christian faith, because if you deny that one central doctrine that Christ came back to life bodily and physically, you are not a Christian. There is no, we'll get to that. But I thought that was an interesting 
introduction to this idea that many claim to be of Christ, many claim to appreciate and admire him. But when it comes down to it, if you deny the resurrection, you deny Christ himself. Paul does that right here. Verse 15, chapter 15, verse one says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. I would remind you of it. I would proclaim to you. I would return your attention to this gospel. He says that I deliver to you what is of first importance. What is of critical importance? What is the, what is the leading aspect of the gospel that Paul wants to remind them of? Verse 3, it says that he, was, that, he was, that he died for our sin in accordance with the scripture. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. Dave just read that for us. Paul says, I would remind you of what is of first importance. Remember the Passover week, A.D. 30. That is of critical importance. We as Christians may, can sometimes assume that story. Uh, we, we all know the, the, the death and resurrection of Christ. Right? We don't want to move on to advanced doctrines. And Paul says you need to remember what is of critical importance. Because those Advanced doctrines collapse with a foggy understanding of the resurrection and what it entails for both Christ and for his church. This is of first importance, and this is actually what they call in the passage here. It's sort of one of the great creeds in the scriptures of the early church. It was a way that they would repeat the gospel in a way that they could remember with the verbs and the cadence. It's sort of like teaching a limerick or a rhyme to your children. This is one of those passages that was taught in the original language to be memorable for its cadence and its grammar that we could, because they didn't have iPhones and pocket Bibles like we did. So they would remember this creed that Christ was uh, killed for our sins. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day that he appeared to the apostles and to 500. And it's this story. It's this almost like a tract. It's a verbal tract of who Christ was. This is central to our confession. In other words, there is no Christian faith apart from this confession. As I was saying in that example, there is no Christian faith outside of this doctrine, outside of this creed, outside of this confession. There is no Christian faith. There are many churches that are filled with people under the name of Jesus Christ who deny his resurrection, if not his outright existence. There are churches that exist on the basis that God does not exist or Christ is not real. And they call themselves churches, and they are not churches. They are not Christian. Paul says this is of first importance. Paul says that the Passover week, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ harmonizes with God's earlier scriptures. That it's in line with and it's in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. Because at this time, again, Paul was writing, and when he referenced scriptures, he's not referencing his own material. He's referencing the Old Testament. So again, it it sort of leads us back to that Old Testament to to comb through and to study it and to see where the law and the prophets were prophesying a a, um, a Messiah that would die, be buried, and would be raised again on the third day. It's a challenge sometimes to find and mind those truths. But Paul says the Old Testament planned and prophesied this entire event. It's perfectly in line with God's plan. The crucifixion was never a backup plan of God's. It was not something Jesus arbitrarily submitted to because the crowds turned on him. This is a plan from eternity past. 
And it says that not only did this happen, but that he appeared to hundreds of people. Especially in the Old Testament, how many witnesses did it take to establish a fact in court? The Old Testament says all you need is two witnesses. Paul says he appeared to more than 500. You couldn't even fit all those witnesses in a courtroom. <clears throat> so again, we're, we're leading up to this. Who, who denies the resurrection? Who is it who denies this? We have hundreds and hundreds of witnesses. It would be like when one of those protests happened and everyone shows up with an iPhone and everyone records it. And then someone turns around and says, oh, that didn't happen. Like, are you kidding? We have the evidence. We can see it. There's 500 witnesses. <clears throat> and what is critical to this story, to this event, is that the meaning is explained to us. It's not up to us to figure out what Jesus meant when he died or what God was doing. It says in verse 3 that he died for our sins. Do you know who the victim was on the cross of Jesus Christ? Do you know what the victim was? Do you know what truly died on the cross? Sin's power in your life. Sin was the victim. Satan's grip upon humanity was the victim on the cross of Jesus Christ. Our sins were defeated. They were crushed. We were loosed from our bondage to sin on that cross. This is why it's of core necessity. And this is also the reason why Paul goes on to defend it. Paul goes on to defend it. Have you ever encountered somebody when you're either speaking of something maybe political or economic or, you know, uh, spiritual or theological and somebody contradicts you? We don't do that much in Canada. <clears throat> We're too polite to contradict somebody to their face. Usually we'll sort of pretend we agree with them and be agreeable and pretend to see it their way. Then we'll go make a Facebook post or a tweet and say, I, mean, I can't believe how many idiots there are out there. Sometimes we're too polite in Canadian culture, and sometimes we're actually taken aback when somebody contradicts us. Have you ever been in a conversation or at a dinner party or something, and somebody just flat out contradicts you and says, oh, that's completely wrong, or that's bonkers, or where are you coming from with that? How do you respond? Well, first of all, it depends on how central it is what you're talking about. How central is it to your identity? How central is it to your purpose in life? Well, Paul says for the Christian, this is it. This is your identity. This is your purpose. This is the power in your life. This is the relevancy of God to humanity. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it fulfills and establishes all that God had promised. It doesn't encapsulate everything that God says to humanity, but it fulfills it. It brings to life and reality all that the scriptures say. That's why it's so critical. And so Paul says, why are you saying that? He attacks those and he confronts those who would, who would dare to contradict it. And again, how, how does that happen in your life? Are there times where you dig your heels and you say, no, I won't let you lie to me. I won't let you lie to my children. Again, I would say we live in a culture which loves the phrase, don't die on every hill. You know, and if you're living in physical bodies, we know the limits of our bodies. We know the limits of our minds. There's some truth to that. But right now we live in truly a surrender every hill type of culture. And much of Christianity has fallen into that. Surrender every hill. They'll love us if we don't argue with them. They'll love us if we don't contradict them. 
No, no. Paul says, this is the cornerstone. This is a hill we must die on. And any other hill that's worth dying on is only worth it because of this hill, because of this truth. What you believe about how to worship or what you do on Sundays or how you raise your kids or what kind of political system you think is right, none of that matters if Christ is not raised from the dead. And we're going to see that play out. So number one, we proclaim it. It's a time to proclaim the real physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. I love talking to Jacob about this because he'll say, you know, Jesus' physical body is somewhere in the cosmos right now. You ever thought about that? He was raised in a physical body. He showed the hands and nails in his feet that held him to that wooden cross. That was in his glorified body. Christ is physically alive. And so number two, we look at starting in verse 12. It's a time to defend the resurrection of Christ because it is under attack. We may not see it specifically under attack in those words, but you need to make no mistake that if this is the foundation of our confession, where is Satan going to aim his attacks? He's going to aim it at the core. He's going to aim it at the foundation. He's not going to try to pick off all the flags that are at the top of the fortress. He's going to try to bomb the foundations. And this is true from the very beginning. And that's why I asked Dave to read in Matthew 28, where it shows that the elders, that is the the churchmen, that is the ruling Jews. They're the ones who gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, tell people that his disciples came by and stole the body. Um, While we were asleep. Which, by the way, a a Roman soldier could face the death penalty for falling asleep at a tomb. So, guarding anything. So, they must have given them a sufficient amount of money, enough to maybe get out of Dodge. Because if word got around that these soldiers fell asleep, they could be executed themselves. So, the elders came up with a huge chunk of change in order to bribe the soldiers to lie about what happened to the body. And this story has spread among the Jews today. So, there's been liars from the beginning who deny reality. That's not new to our culture. That's not new to our culture where you show somebody the facts and they just lie about it. They deny it and they lie. Don't be surprised by that because they did that with the tomb of Jesus Christ. Because the threat of the resurrected Christ was too great for them to bear. It was too glorious a reality. It was too invasive a doctrine for them to believe. So they would rather lie about it. They knew the truth. But people, as we learn in Romans 1, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They don't want to crown Jesus as the king of kings. They don't want to admit that he came back to life. Because that would threaten their unrighteousness. And so they suppress the truth. They lie. And liars have been attacking Jesus' resurrection in many forms. And many come from inside the church. Did you know that? You look at church history, many theologians rose up and they would write against the divine nature of Christ, that he was never truly God or that he was never truly man. So he never really died. And these heresies arise from within the church many times, other times from without. And it is to the church to open our Bibles and say, no, we have the record. We have the witnesses. We must defend it and say, you're lying. You're attacking what is 
central and critical to our confession. I say one of the, and this may seem like an old example, but one of the major ways that that's happen, that happens in our culture is through Darwin's Origin of Species. It's an old, old book. And you may think, wow, that is so not a relevant cultural example. But it is taught as gospel truth to children in their schools. That Darwin's origin is the creation story. Now, what happens if you latch yourself on <clears throat> to a purely naturalistic view of reality? There is no resurrection. There is no life after death. In fact, death is the only mechanism that regulates life. That's what Darwin, Darwin uh, proposed. And we embrace that. And we wonder why children growing up under that tutelage, they're nihilists. They're deconstructionists. They see no hope in the future. That's the doctrine of no resurrection bearing fruit in the world. <clears throat> the doctrine of the resurrection is indeed under attack. Now, why do we defend it? it Maybe it's self-evident at this point, but the scriptures go on to tell us why Paul gets up to defend it. Verse 12 and 13 why do some of say why or how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Why, how can you lie when this happened? He calls out and attacks the liars who are trying to sow confusion or doubt in this reality. There are some, <clears throat> I'm sure, well-meaning pastors that I've even heard in the last 10 years who have said, you know, if they found the tomb of Jesus Christ today, and his bones were still there. My faith wouldn't be shaken. And it's supposed to be a sign of strength. And my faith is bigger than any evidence. My faith is bigger than any discovery. My faith can, could even withstand, you know, Jesus still being dead. But Paul says, do you know why we defend it? Because we lose everything without the resurrection. He states it in the negative first. Look at these verses. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. <clears throat> it's sort of a logical progression here. Well, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus is still dead. And if Jesus has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are found to be misrepresenting God. So he's stating all the negative consequences if this is true. And this is interesting. This is how he boils it down. He says... Christian preaching is pointless. Christian activity of all types are pointless. Our faith is pointless. We lose everything that is encapsulated in Christianity if Christ is not raised from the dead. <clears throat> and you possibly haven't even thought of that because you go to church every Sunday and you sort of assume these realities to be true and you do your best to live in them. But do you recognize that you come to church because Jesus was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago? You come to church because he is alive today. <clears throat> and so when Paul hangs so much upon this doctrine, he defends it because of how much is at stake. It's everything. It's all of everything. He states it in the negative first. And so it kind of begs the question, and this is where I'm going to spend the bulk of my time is looking at <clears throat> the consequences and implications of the resurrection. If we lose everything, if Christ is not raised, then what do we gain <clears throat> because he is? If we lose everything without the resurrection, then what do we gain if it's true? And this is my third point, starting at verse 19 here. 
is that the cross is not limited in its implication. It's not limited in its application. It's not just some narrow personal application to the cross of Christ. And this is why some people think, well, in my heart, I am inspired by the story of a resurrection. Well, that fails, that fails to live up to the reality that the cross created in the world. Starting in verse 19. Oh, Paul concludes that. We, we don't want to miss this. If Christ has not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep have perished. They're gone forever. And we, of all people, are most to be pitied. We are a pitiful people if, if our story is not true. If our story is not true, we should be laughed at and mocked by the world. And yet Paul says, verse 20, but what if Christ was raised? What are the implications if he did come back to life? <clears throat> verse 20, if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, the, the cross of Christ is not just merely there for our astonishment. It's not just a miracle that God did to say, hey, look, something really interesting happened. You know, again, and again, I hate to pick on Andy Stanley, but he said that if a guy comes back from the dead, then you should listen to him. Essentially, the, the resurrection was nothing more than just an astonishing trick so that people would pay attention to who Jesus was. It's true that it's astonishing, but that's not all it was. It was not just some strange historic anomaly. Paul's first point here, what's the first implication of the resurrection? That Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? It means he's the first one to come back to, to life in a long line of many who will come back to life. He foretells a redeemed order of which he is the first, which is set in motion by his resurrection. His resurrection set in motion a new order of redemption that would unfold over history. That's why we see that not every enemy is yet subjected to Christ, but he is ruling and reigning. He is subduing the effects of sin. He is minimizing his enemies, as we read this morning in the psalm. He will shut up the mouths of every liar. He has put in motion a redemption that includes all of us who fall asleep in Christ. Do you have ancestors or grandparents or even close loved ones who have died in Christ? This passage is often read at funerals. Because when somebody dies in Christ, we call it sleeping. We call it sleeping for a reason. Eventually, because of Jesus, we know that they're going to wake up one day. We can't wake them up. You know, in the, in the olden days before medicine was, was as um, minute and, and I don't want to say advanced, that's a bit of a moral word, but, but when medicine was a bit more primitive with less testing mechanisms, they used to bury people with a bell inside their, or a string that went down inside of their coffin that was attached to a bell near the gravekeeper's house because if somebody was in a deep coma or some kind of unconscious trauma and they were buried alive, they could actually pull the string and ring the bell and they would dig them back up. So we're thankful for some advancements today. That would be a rude awakening. But that, it's not that kind of sleep. 
Death itself is a sleep from which we will wake up. And as I was reading this and studying, I came across a, a concept that R.C. Sproul shared that I thought was so interesting and so helpful here for verse 21, for by for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. What does he mean by that? For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What does that mean? R.C. Sproul calls it our twofold solidarity. It's twofold solidarity. We identify first with Adam as our natural father, right? All of us came from Adam at one time. Doesn't matter what color your skin is or what language you speak. We all trace our roots back to Adam, our father of the dust. And in Adam, we inherited his reward for his life, which is what? Death. We all inherited Adam's reward. We all face the prospect of dying one day. I hope you're not afraid of it, but I hope you're also aware that it's going to happen. But likewise, in Christ, if we are united to Christ, we are set and bound to inherit his reward, which is life. That's twofold solidarity. So in Adam, we are united to death. And in Christ, we are united to life. Two men, Adam the first, Christ the second Adam. And we're going to look at that next week in Romans, which is so exciting. And so it says that in by a man came death, by also a man came the resurrection of the dead. We know that Christ was raised from the dead, but have you ever read about what happened when Christ was crucified? Everyone knows that what are the major events when Christ was crucified? What happened to the sky? It went dark. What happened to the veil? It was ripped in two. Earthquake. There was an earthquake. What happened to the tombs surrounding Jerusalem? Did you know that tombs broke open and right, dead righteous people appeared to many people in Jerusalem? We don't know their names. But when Christ was crucified, graves broke open and dead men came back to life for who knows how long. Maybe they lived another five or ten years. Did you know that? That there was a... There was the first fruits suddenly burst forth when Christ was crucified. Why? It was a sign and it was a foretelling of the death of death and the death of sin. The consequences of Christ, what are the implications of his death and resurrection are, are so vast that literally tombs burst open with life when he was crucified. Sort of as a side note, in, in my view, if you read Revelation chapter 20, which speaks of the first resurrection over those who participate in the first resurrection, over them, the power of the second death is void. My view is that this is that first resurrection, the tombs breaking forth in physical life. And also it is the resurrection that you and I experience spiritually when we come from death to life. Jesus says, those who abide in me have already passed from death to life. So in my opinion, that this is the first resurrection. We are already moving eschatologically through the book of Revelation, seeing the dead come back to life in the gospel. And so what's another application? You keep going on here, and it says that in Adam we receive death, and in Christ we receive life but each in his own order. So there's an order to all of this. There is a 
there is a there is a a system and there is a process that God is accomplishing through the resurrection. First, each in his own are Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So all of the dead didn't come back to life. We don't see a continual recycling of gravestones being broken open and the dead walking. Again, that was a first fruit sign of the final resurrection. But we will all be physically raised when? In what order will, be, will, will we be raised? It says when Christ returns at his coming, the dead will be raised. Do you want to know when your grandma or grandpa or father or brother is coming back to life if they slept in Christ? When Christ returns, when the sound of the trumpet heralds, the dead will be raised. And Paul says in, in, in other places, they will actually go first. They get to go first, sort of out of honor. They had to die. If we are here when Christ returns, the, the, we will see the dead get to meet Christ first, and we will follow them to meet Christ. And so there's an order to this resurrection. It's an orderly um, expansion of this redemption. And then verse 25, what else takes place? Uh, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So why did Jesus re return to life? Because he has to reign. God had to install his king upon the throne. Ephesians 1 says that when he was raised, he inherited a name that was greater than all names. He ascended to a throne upon his resurrection. He is reigning over his enemies. The Bible says that we who come to life also reign with him. The scriptures say that we are seated with Christ now in the heavenly places. You are rulers with Christ today. Even now, you are ruling and reigning with him. So was he raised to life and then basically taken out of the game until some future event? Is he sort of just off playing ping pong and waiting for the eschatological calendar to resume? Not at all. He's on his throne today. He is interceding in history today, and he is subduing his enemies today. His reign is functionally dismantling every rival and every rebellion that is left on this earth. Until at his coming, the Bible says, when he will defeat the last enemy. Here's what you need to remember is that we all will still die even though we're in Christ because death in our bodies is the one enemy that Christ has not yet destroyed on our behalf. The Bible says that. That's why we need to be safe when we cross the road. That's why we need to wear seatbelts. That's why we need to take care of ourselves because death is coming. But it will be destroyed when Christ calls our name. Death will no longer hold us. Death will not have the power over our bodies. Christ will assert his authority over our bodies. Christ will demand his reign. Christ will demand his reward in us when he returns. And death will obey. Death will submit. Death will lay down dead. Christ will assert his final reign. And finally, and I love this, the resurrection gives us confidence and assurance and permission to die every day. Now, that sounds like a contradiction. Why, why do we need to take care of ourselves? We know death is coming, but Paul says, if Christ is raised, I'm going to totally skip over why are people baptized on behalf of the dead. I'm not even touching that today. 
But verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? Paul says, look at my life. How would you explain my life? I never took a wife. I'm, I'm on shipwrecks constantly. I'm fighting with wild beasts. I'm, I'm getting bitten by snakes. I'm going hungry. I'm being beaten. I'm being imprisoned. Look at my life. How do you explain it? The way a Christian lives under suffering is recognizing that we die every single day in Christ. Our lives are not our own. Our lives do not belong to us to keep in perfect preservation. We no longer fear death. We no longer fear conflict or battle or hardship. Our bodies become an instrument of righteousness, fit to be spent for Christ. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. If by excessive labor, he was a preacher who died at 57. If by excessive labor we die before reaching the average age of man, which he ended up doing, worn out in the master's service, then glory be to God. It is our duty and our privilege to exhaust our lives for Jesus. We are not to be living specimens of men in fine preservation, but living sacrifices whose lot it is to be consumed. Paul says, I fight with beasts. I contend with evil men. Paul says, even now my life is being poured out like a drink offering. Paul spent himself for Jesus Christ. Why? Because his hope was not bound up in the immediate what was in front of him. Paul labored for the things that could be preserved beyond death. He labored for things that would last into eternity. And guess what? Those things come hard. They're difficult. They take blood, sweat, and commitment, and time, and money. Eternity is not one, merely in the heart and the spirit. It's one in, in the spending of our physical bodies for the service of Christ. Paul traveled and preached and worked like he did in order to spread the gospel so that when men understood it, they would be preserved in eternity. But if Christ is not raised, then our labors and our sacrifices will count for nothing. They will count for nothing. But because he is raised, I encourage you to endure. Wherever you're exhausted in Christ, whatever it is that you're doing for Jesus Christ that seems harder than what your neighbors are doing because they're not serving him, keep on doing it. Endure for the sake of Christ because you are laboring not for just mere life as we know it here. You are laboring for eternity. Are you laboring under the raising of children? Are you laboring under the caring for somebody who is infirmed and unable to take care of themselves and you're ministering to them? And it's an exhausting call. Fight and contend and endure and disciple those around you. Your time and mine are short. That's what the death and resurrection of Christ teaches us. Our time in these bodies is short. And just, you know, Paul says in verse 35, just as we close, he says, you know, some might raise the objection. Well, if there's erection, what kind of body? Have you ever met people that they don't have any argument against you? All they try to do is ask silly questions. And they think if they can trip you up once, then they win the argument. That's exactly who Paul's referencing. But someone will ask, verse 35, well, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they have, huh, smart guy? It's like, come on, Jesus already raised from the dead, and he showed what kind of body he had. But his whole discourse there, in time with the context, is this. 
A kernel goes into the ground. It comes back something new and better. Jesus said those exact words in the Gospel of John. He said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. It does not bear fruit. So in the same way, friends, when your natural body is sown in dishonor, you will be raised perfectly fruitful, perfectly equipped for heavenly service. Your bodies now are equipped for whatever earthly service God has called you to. Did you know that? Whatever you're able to do is what God has called you to do. But in, in our resurrection, the scriptures say that we are raised in, the, in a new type of glory. We will be equipped for heavenly service for eternity. That's what kind of body you're going to get. There's no wear and tear. There's no tears. There's no injury. You are equipped for eternal heavenly service in your resurrection. And friends, what's interesting about that is it's very similar to what we experience on earth, only without sin. You are raised in a new physical body, and you're equipped for eternal heavenly service to Jesus Christ. That is all foretold by the resurrection of Christ when he came out of that tomb. And so, as we close, we meditate on this twofold truth of Easter. That unless a grain of wheat dies and goes into the earth, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so we embrace our solidarity with Christ. And this is not just a, a belief that's purely in your heart. It is a belief that proclaims Jesus' reign over the earth today. He is the Lord of all creation now. He is Lord over your life and he commands of you to be spent because we will end up in the ground as a grain of wheat one day. So spend yourselves for Christ and also to walk in righteousness. He has given us not only a resurrection by the gospel, but he has given us the Holy Spirit who animates that righteousness that was promised to Israel in Ezekiel chapter 34. And as Paul experienced, and don't leave here without recognizing this, the fight and the hardship begins when you come out of the tomb. That's when the battle begins. Those who live, as we said last week, in the world and of the world, they are at peace with the world. They live lives of ease and fattening and, and pleasure. And Paul says, hey, if there's no resurrection, go get all the pleasure you can. Go drink all you can. Indulge all you can. Get all you can. But if the resurrection is true, then there is a much higher value than what you can indulge in. And there's a battle that takes place. There's a battle for your children. There's a battle for your mind and your body. Satan would love to destroy the body before it serves God. He would love to destroy the mind and rob it of our assurance. The fight truly begins when we step out of the tomb. But as Paul said, we can fight beasts. We can endure for the sake of the gospel. We can labor for that which is eternal. And when we die, that's when we'll know we're finished. You will do and accomplish all that God has for you in your bodies until he brings about this order of the final resurrection. You'll know when you're done because God will call you home or he will send his son to bring us there. So the hope of the resurrection is for today. It is for now. It bleeds into every area of our lives. It affects and commands of us every aspect. We sang on Good Friday um, at my house 
the wonderful cross, there's a part that says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. The gospel demands of us every part of who we are. And we have the hope to give it because of the resurrection. Let's close in prayer. We'll sing one final hymn.